Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one more hour, he asked Peter. And we'll stop there. There's just more of the disciples being asleep, more of Jesus praying, and more of him being frustrated. This is an incredibly important passage, and I believe that this particular passage of Scripture might be the most important point in all of Jesus' story. Here we see Jesus on the brink of his arrest and his subsequent death in the Garden of Gethsemane alone. The disciples were there also, but their presence and their actions simply emphasized the fact of his absolute and desolate loneliness. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him as they left the other eight at the gate. But then it says in verse 39, Jesus, going a little farther, fell with his face to the ground and prayed. And if we just go a little farther, we'll see again. They were supposed to be awake at night, keeping watch and praying, but instead they fell asleep three different times. He was let down by his closest friends in his hour of need. And I think the church, unfortunately, has followed the example of the disciples here in the world's great hour of need today. Jesus has asked us to be watchful and to pray, and we've often done neither. We've often found it easier to just fall into the slumber of what everyone else is doing and just go along each day without much cause or concern for the cares of Christ. Earlier in Scripture, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem for all of the sin that they were taking in, and I believe he's weeping over our world tonight the same way. So we need to make a statement just like Peter did in verse 33, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. But we need to actually back it up. Even if all fall away and I find you, I never will. Of course, you know Peter doesn't back it up. So how do we accomplish this? How do we do better than Peter did? How do we do better than the disciples did? See, Peter was sincere in his promise to Jesus. He really meant it when he said that. Even if all fall away and I count you, I never will. Have you guys ever said something that you really meant and then ended up doing like the exact opposite of that thing? Almost immediately thereafter. <laughs> Like starting tomorrow, I'm gonna to give up Taco Bell and I'm gonna eat healthy and I'm gonna tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. workout. I'm gonna work out every day. I'm gonna start reading the Bible two hours every morning, and then and then you don't, you know what I mean? I've said these things and I really meant them. Like I was honest and I was sincere, just like Peter was sincere when he said, even if all others fall away, but I lack the discipline or the drive to follow through with that. We've done that. And sometimes it takes us to a place where we get frustrated at ourselves, like I oh, told myself I was going to do it and I didn't do it. And we just kind of stay in this state of like this weird cycle of saying we're going to do something because we really do love the Lord or we really do want to do that thing. And we don't do it and we fail ourselves and we get frustrated. And then we sometimes spiral into that continual like, I let myself down, I'm not good enough. And, and sometimes that can go in a really dark place. So how do we get out of that? How do we get out of that vicious cycle? The thing is, when we say those things, it's because we do have a sincere heart, but we don't actually know our own heart. No person truly knows their own heart. Peter was absolutely sincere, but he didn't know his own heart. He didn't know himself. He didn't know his weakness or his power. He didn't know the forces that were going to come against him. He didn't know how dark the darkness could be, or how terrible the temptation might be to just deny Jesus. It's so much easier that way. But Jesus knew his heart. 
Christ knew that beneath all of that wonderful devotion that Peter had, which was so precious to Jesus, Peter was always there right by his side, you know? We see in a little bit he's going to cut a guy's ear off because he just cares so much about Jesus. And Jesus, in his last healing act, heals his own enemy's ear and says, Peter, put away your sword. Come on, bro. That that passion that Peter had was actually his weakness. That impulsive, passionate, fiery man that Peter was, under great stress of temptation to run away, he could and would deny Christ. And Jesus knew that. How do we take responsibility? How do we actually back up our words and our faith when the times get tough? Even when we're sincere, even when we have great faith. Peter really did believe Jesus. That was right after he declares him the Messiah. And Jesus is like, you actually get it, you're getting it. And then the next one, he doesn't get it. Even when we have great faith, even when we declare Christ as Messiah, how do we follow through with it? Let's look back at our hero, Hudson Taylor. When we last left our intrepid hero, he'd been a victim of uh, shipwreck, war, scorn, fire, and robbery. All of these things happened within the first two years of him landing in China. All of his medical supplies were burned. He was robbed of everything he owned after the shipwreck, the civil war, and the scorn. So at this point, he's faced with a choice. He can return home to England, dejected, but with a chance to continue practicing medicine, make a good life for himself, find a nice wife, and be comfortable. Or he can continue on in China, where things are going less than spectacularly. By the very nature of the fact that we're having this talk about him, you know which one he answered. You can imagine which course he took. He plowed on. He accepted the suffering that was thrust upon him. And he continued onward because he knew that God's will for his life was to seek and save the lost people of China. That was God's call in his life, and so the circumstances really didn't matter. He was able to count it all as loss and continue suffering for Christ's sake because he said to God, not my will, but your will. Unlike other missionaries, Hudson was willing to adopt Chinese culture. He shaved his forehead, he wore his hair in a pigtail, and he donned the customary clothes, something that no one else was willing to do there because of their own pride. By these simple acts of solidarity, the Chinese people started listening to him. They started to take notice of what he had to say. He traveled in a boat up and down the rivers, speaking and sharing the message of God. He handed out tracts and Bible verses. Um, there he married a fellow missionary, and then they adopted and cared for multiple Chinese children. And during his early years, he wrote to his sister, if I had a thousand pounds, dollars, not like weighing a thousand pounds. If I had a thousand pounds, China should have all of them. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? After all of that, Taylor and his family continued preaching in China and returning to England back and forth to continue to spread the word of the need overseas. He became prolific in his influence. He started the China Inland Mission, and he led one historian to say this about him. No other missionary in 19th century since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and carried out a more systematized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor. The hardships continued throughout his success, though, as Taylor had to bury five of his children upon birth immediately, and another two of his children died before they reached age 10. That's insane. But all the while, though, he stayed true to God's call on his life to preach the gospel to the lost in China. 
And so looking at his life, it's clear that over and over again, he said to God, not my will, but your will be done. He repeatedly drank that cup of suffering and hardship that was handed to him because he believed that the cause of Christ was worth it. So if we go back to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus presented with the cup of our sin. And in this dire time, Jesus prayed three prayers. And the first one appears in verse 39. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now this is not just a prayer that the cup may pass. It says that, but I believe that this is actually a prayer that God's will be done. The focus on this prayer is not really on the cup, but it's simply upon Jesus' obedience to his Heavenly Father. That he would rather choose for God's will rather than his own will, even though it meant taking the cup of infinite sorrow, a cup representing all of our sins, the sin of humanity, past, present, and future, is handed to Jesus. In this moment of overwhelming agony, that's when the soul is tempted to doubt God's love and goodness. We see it throughout other biblical examples and stories. We see it in our own lives, that the most overwhelmingly agonizing times and places in our life are the times where we are tempted to doubt God's love. But in Jesus' case, with the, the surging sea of sorrow around him and the intense loneliness and abandonment of his friends filling his heart, his sense of relation to his Father and his Father's will is unbroken. In this prayer of Jesus, we see the submission of a heart fully obedient to the will of the Father. And this submission is the culmination of a life that never gave in to the temptation of selfishness. Long ago, we can see at the onset of Jesus' ministry, alone in the wilderness, the enemy openly offers the kingdoms of this world to Jesus and asks for one brief act of submission to him. Remember when Satan says, if you'll just bow down to me for a moment, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Jesus responded by saying, scripture back to him, you shall only worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We flash forward to the middle of Christ's ministry, and the same temptation returns in full force. Only this time it's not in the open guise of the enemy, but rather in the form of Peter, Jesus' dear friend. Jesus tells the disciples clearly at this time that he must suffer and be killed at the hands of the priests and teachers of the law. But Peter isn't having any of this. He loves Jesus too much to let him die. And so in Matthew 16, 22 and 23, Peter says, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, the gall. Never, Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. You're not going to die. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, when I've read this passage before, we all think, that is so harsh. This is his friend Peter, but think about this, in the terms of Jesus' whole entire life. From day one, he'd been tempted with the kingdoms of this world, if he'd only given but a little bit. And even now, we understand in the context that this spirit of rebellion in Peter is the same spirit of Satan that offered those kingdoms to Jesus so long ago. Eight days later, while witnessing the glory of Jesus and the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter echoes the same similar selfish sentiment. When he says to Jesus, it's good for us to be here. I can build three tents so we can stay up here. Not the cross and death, Lord. No, not that. But the mountain of glory. Let's stay here, says Peter. Get the kingdoms of this world without having to suffer. Just bow down to me for a moment, says Satan. So you see, Jesus has been tempted with the easy way out from day one of his ministry. And those are enticing temptations. 
He'd been tempted with the easy way out right away, but then throughout his whole ministry. So it's something that he had in the back of his mind, or maybe really at the forefront of his mind the entire time. So when we read him yelling at Peter, get behind me, Satan, and it seems harsh from Jesus, we have to understand that Peter was presenting to him the thing that was tugging at his heartstrings his whole entire life. Jesus knew what the cross meant, and he knew what the cup meant. And Peter was trying to give him a way out. That's why he says, you're a stumbling block to me. Jesus needed to focus on the will of the Father and not give in to the selfish temptations that plagued him because he was human as we were. So now we enter the scene with Jesus alone in the garden. Up to this point, he's been a paragon of a life of absolute surrender to the Father. The darkness is around him and the cup. The cup is full of the most vile thing in existence, our sin. This cup of infinite sorrow is presented to Jesus. And the last temptation of shadow, the shadow of temptation is passing before him. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. His prayer to the Father. Is this a moment of weakness from Jesus? If that was all that Jesus had said, if it had stopped there, and he'd refused at the depths of despair that he was at in heartache. But no, he pressed on. Quickly, immediately, he continues resolutely with the words to his Father. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That is Jesus' mantra throughout. There is temptation, more temptation he faced than we ever will face. Because he had the cup before him of infinite sorrow and sin. And he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In that moment, he, he took the cup. He took it as he had taken in the past against the devil's temptations, against the apostle Peter's suggestions. And he took it in utter loneliness, simply because it was the will of the Father. The battle of Calvary was won in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right there. The Battle of Calvary, the Cross of Calvary, the moment in time was won in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus took the cup, he said, All right, Father, not my will, but yours. That shameful walk to Golgotha and the ignominious death upon the cross that he faced were a result of his absolute surrender in the Garden. Jesus drank the cup. Hudson Taylor drank the cup. They both surrendered their will to the will of the Father. So what are we to do? We know the right answer, but what are we to do? How are we to do it? We often ask God for a way out when we're presented with this cup. Sometimes we ask God or even others to take the cup from us. We don't want it. We don't want the responsibility. We don't want to suffer. It hurts. But there's something about suffering for Christ's sake that brings us closer to the heart of God. We don't actively seek suffering. Hudson Taylor didn't actively seek it, neither did Jesus. But when presented with the cup of our will versus God's, knowing full well what the cup might entail, what are we to do? Are we willing to be like Jesus and submit and say, not my will, but your will be done? Hudson Taylor says this, God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. Now this might seem counterintuitive. This seems interesting. He says, God isn't looking for people of great faith. I'd say it, it hinges upon our definition of faith. I'm not going to go into it here, but I think the most important point of this is for individuals ready to follow him. Because we can't simply rely on faith. I could have faith that God will love me and protect me, but if I go lay down in traffic <laughs> like an idiot, I'm going to die, you know? So there's something to be said about faith that 
lines up with reality that trusts God's will, you know, rather than a blind faith, you know. And I think that's what Taylor's talking about here. God wants people who are willing to follow him. We must actively take responsibility. We cannot simply rely on, you know, our blind faith or the actions of others, but we must actually do something when we are presented with the cup. Because remember, Jesus, he heals the paralytic, but he tells him to take up his bed and walk. Go and sin no more is his command. There's always a responsibility given to someone that he heals or saves. He could have picked up the bed for the guy. He could have, you know what I mean? He could have done these things, but as C.S. Lewis says, Swimming lessons are better than a lifeline to the shore. I don't have it up there, but I'll repeat it for you. Swimming lessons are better than a lifeline to the shore. And I think that's a profound statement from my good friend C.S. Lewis. It is better to teach us how to swim so that we don't go wading into too deep of water again than just give us a lifeline over and over again and learn nothing. But then we're like sheep without a shepherd. God walks with us and he teaches us how to swim so we don't do that and start drowning again. In the, in the book of Daniel, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. They're literally in a fire. Does Jesus take them out of the fire? No. He meets them in the fire where they're at, and they're not consumed by it. See what I'm saying? So sometimes there will be these things that when we take this cup, we'll be put into a fire. We'll be put into a place where it seems like we're drowning. But the Lord is with us. He doesn't give us too much that we can't handle. He doesn't give us a cup that wasn't meant for us. See what I'm saying? So... We have to understand that, yes, the cup might bring suffering, but it's far better than us choosing for our own highest good because we don't even know what that means. Just like Peter. We think we know, and we're sincere, and then it gets real bad, and we deny Jesus three times, and it's really sad. <laughs> so we cannot just simply stand on the rock of, of salvation. You know, okay, we're here. We, we love Jesus. We're with him. And then sometimes we call out to God and say, come, come help me. Come, come help me with this thing or this little toil or this trouble. And all the while, Jesus is in the stormy ocean below us. We're on the rock. We're fine. Maybe get a little ocean spray, but nothing that big. And there's people in the ocean drowning. They haven't had their swimming lessons yet. And Jesus isn't there. And he says, no, come help me. He's asking for us to come help him. He's asking for us to reach and save the lost, as Hudson Taylor did, as Jesus obviously did by drinking the cup for all mankind. So we must be willing to go out into the world and preach the word of God regardless of the adversity or affliction that we will face. Notice I said we will face that affliction, not just that we might face it. Because if we are really preaching, truly preaching the radical good news of the gospel, we will be scorned as Hudson Taylor was and as Jesus was. And if that's not the case, then we're not doing it right. Taylor says this about the Great Commission. He says, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed for all who walk with Jesus. So we must follow his path, the path of Hudson Taylor, the path of Jesus by drinking the cup, whatever that may mean for our life, whatever personal thing that God has given to us and asked us to do to lay down our will, we must do so. As we close... The band can come on back up. I just want us to consider the cup before us. We all have the choice. We can take it or we can refuse it. And Jesus gives us that sweet dignity to choose. We can choose him or ourselves as Lord of our life. There will be a master of our life. It will be either us, selfishness and sin, or it will be Jesus. 
as Gandalf says, all we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. We're not asked to do anything outside of that. We're not asked to save the world, but we're asked to see the things that are at our feet that God has entrusted us with and be obedient to that. That's all it is. We don't have to climb the mountain, but we take the step towards Jesus in everything that we do in our daily life. So I believe that God is with us here tonight. So let us respond to what he is saying to each of us by laying down whatever it is that is keeping us from taking that cup of his will. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. So what scripture says, each one of us has things that we have not yet given up or given over to Jesus. And those things need to be laid down tonight. So come to the front, find a friend, do whatever it takes so that we can lay down our selfish desires and honestly say to God, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Not my will, but your will be done. we got to let these things die tonight. We don't want to continue on and be in the same place we were two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now. But we can let these things die tonight by giving them up to Jesus. We can't do this on our own. Scripture says in Jeremiah, can a leper change his spots? Can I change the things that are wrong with me, the sores, the pains, the afflictions? So no. With what power do I have to remove this sin from my life? I have none. Like I said before, I've tried to do these things and said, I'll do this or that, but I really don't have the discipline apart from Jesus. And remember what we said, Peter said, even if I'll fall away, I never will, and then he denies Jesus, but then look at what happens to Peter later, once he's filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It's very different, and he preaches to the Gentiles, and he says the Holy Spirit is for all people. And they're like, you can't preach to the Gentiles, we're the Jews, we're the chosen people, and he says, no. This Jesus, this Holy Spirit is for all people. That's a fast change from a man who's scared of what a little girl might say about him and ask, hey, are we one of Jesus' friends? And he shies away and he says no three times that night. So what changed in Peter? It wasn't that he got disciplined. It wasn't that he decided, okay, I'll, I'll figure it out myself. He didn't, there were no 12 steps. It was the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that changed Peter. And then he went and preached to the entire known world. It's the Holy Spirit that changed Hudson Taylor. It's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, that allowed Jesus to say, not my will, nevertheless, but your will, Father. And I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you humbly, but with confidence, because your grace and your mercy is sufficient, that we can come to you and lay down everything that we have, Jesus. We can surrender our lives to you, Lord, our futures to you, our finances, our relationships to you, Jesus, because you are the only one worthy. Let us stop trying to captain our own souls, Lord Jesus, for it only fails. Let us give everything over to you, Lord, not compartmentalize the areas of our life that we trust to you, Jesus. You are Lord and Savior of all. Lord, let us be honest as we come before you, Lord. Let us not care about this shame and pride that we've been holding on to, Lord Jesus. But let us give it to you. Though our sins are as scarlet, you will make us white as snow. Holy Spirit, let us believe those words and let us honestly say, not my will, but your will be done. Amen.